Welcome to The Last Call. It's a conversation between two journalists, one British and one American. My name is John Sweeney, and this in the States is... Michael Weiss. Um, and the, the subject of our conversation is whose country is more fucked, the United States or Britain? Who's winning, Mike, in, in that competition? I've got to say it's the United States. I woke up this morning and my wife turned to me and said, do you know what he's done now? And of course, I knew she meant Donald Trump instinctively. But I, I, even I, in my in my macabre imagination, couldn't have have foreseen the latest, which is he is delaying stimulus checks to Americans uh, because he wants to put his personal signature and name on each and every check. So that's actually that that that's one for your column, John, in terms of this guy being a dictator. Now, I still maintain he's not because our country won't allow him to be and our institutions won't allow him to be. But if ever there were a dictatorial move, I mean, it's, it's sort of like Saddam having to write the Quran in his own blood, you know, um, just sick, <laughs> diseased, megalomaniacal. I, I, I actually, I, mean, I, I couldn't, um, I couldn't, I had to, uh, problem sleeping last night and I was awake at two o'clock and what I do is I go onto Twitter and then I place chess against myself and I often win and um, and then or against the computer whatever and then I go back to Twitter and I keep on doing that until either my phone dies or I fall asleep or something it's a bit tragic frankly but that's what you do in the in the in this uh, plague time but the thing that riled me about Trump wasn't that, bad as that is, it's saying we're not going to pay the, the World Health Organization anymore. And yeah. this is, you know, this is, this is um, such a big lie because he said, I think he tweeted on the 24th of January, we congratulate the Chinese for the excellent job they're doing. And, and so he was, what he's condemning the World Health Organization, which is part of the United Nations, is that they didn't tell the story uh, clearly um, from the get-go, and they, were, they sided too softly with the Chinese. So did Donald Trump. Right. So did Donald Trump. And then the World Health Organization, perhaps because they put pressure on the Chinese, <coughs> said, come on, you've got to move on this, you've got to move on this. And, and, and actually... The World Health Organization um, sort of rammed it up, said you've got to do stuff about this, while Trump was being horribly complacent. So today, today it looks as though the United States is winning. <laughs> in, in our bizarre and tragic competition, who's well, and fun? also, it, I mean, it's it's a it's a very weighted competition, isn't it? I mean, because the U.S. has greater power projection and greater power of the purse. So that, you know, any of these little petty temper tantrums that result in some kind of financial, uh, you know, um, subsidy being withheld is going to have a greater impact when the U.S. does it as opposed to the U.K. But, yeah, no, I, I look, I think, I mean, we, I, we should tell our listeners that we recorded an entire episode of this podcast yesterday. Uh, and unfortunately, on my end, it was 60 minutes of dead air, which is probably better for your health than listening to me go on and on. But... In the course of which we had discussed the fact that if there was a, a glimmer of hope in all of this uh, pandemic crisis that we're seeing is people like Boris, who succumbed to coronavirus, got out of hospital. And, and again, this is not to suggest he's going to be any more benevolent 
uh, a prime minister as a result of it, but at least the, the, the tone and the posturing is, is tending in a right direction. So John had discussed the London Olympic Games in 2012, I believe it was, and I had mentioned that in the opening ceremonies, which was orchestrated by Danny Boyle, you know, one of the things that the Tory right uh, sort of thundered and grumbled about was the, the, the letters NHS spelled out wherever, whatever that was, the pitch, or, or basically in the midst of the opening ceremony presentation as a sign of British pride and glory, uh, you know, with, with the usual complaints. Well, why is the NHS being listed in, you know, all of our grand accomplishments from World War II and so on? And then the first thing Boris does when he gets out of hospital is thank the NHS, so who today would, would, would consider that controversial to consider the NHS the welfare state of the UK, which has been in place since the end of World War II, uh, to be something not worth celebrating and, and not worth uh, heroizing? So I suppose that's one for the, the, the plus side uh, in terms of, or I, I guess in, in our competition, the, 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 the minus side in, in terms of the UK's fuckedness. <laughs> I don't- but, so, Mike, you're, Mike, you're the technical expert. Uh, by the way, we should tell um, our listeners, uh, or we can actually invite them around to our homes in the future, but we can't right now, obviously, um, that this is also a bit of a drinking game as well, or this oh, yeah. is a kind of virtual pub. Um, it's, it's a conversation between two boozy hacks. And um, um, did I say my name, by the way? I'm John Sweeney. Never mind, I can't remember. I'm drinking a... Um, a orange, um, it's sequoia is a big tree somewhere in California. That's wrong then. It's some kind of fancy gin with orangey bits. Um, or it's a bit orangey and I stick an orange in, which is good for you because it helps you against the virus, perhaps. Keep telling <laughs> yourself that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in, in well, Belarus, apparently the, uh, the cure or the prevention for coronavirus <laughs> is vodka and sauna. <laughs> So, so I am actually half inclined to move to Belarus at the moment. I mean, yeah, no, I'm. Um, I've been. Um, one of the um, uh, Mike. Mike, what are you drinking, by the way? So I'm. Um, as some of you, well, none of you know this because nobody listens to this fucking podcast. But last week, <laughs> I, I had declared that my family and I legged it from New York to Michigan to ride out the worst of the pandemic because we happen to live in Queens, which is the epicenter of the epicenter in New York. Um, so this week I decided to go local, uh, and there's a little liquor store down the road from my in-law's house, which is where we're staying, and this guy has all but boarded up the place, and he's an older chap in, in his 70s, I guess, and he's created in, in this, the, the, the space of his store a kind of cordon sanitaire where you, you – forget about six feet. You can't come within about – a good 12 to 20 feet of this man. And in order to pay for your checkout, he, he puts a, like a barge pole at the end of which is a tray attached. You put your credit card in the tray. He retrieves it, runs it, and then hands it back to you. And this is very sort of antiseptic environment for something which is meant to be inherently social and convivial, like alcohol drinking. Anyway, he's got this shelf, which I refer to as the Island of the Misfit Toys. And it's these weird <laughs> vintages of gin you've never heard of. So I, I, try, I take one every, well, let's be honest, every two days I'm replenishing my stock. And so today I decided to go local and I've got, it's called Detroit Railroad Gin, which uh, is not as shitty as it sounds, but um, it's actually quite good. So um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't. I mean, no, I'm. I've made myself a really stiff uh, gin and tonic, but normally, 
um, I like to knock back most of a bottle of Italian red, which uh, I've also heard is good for you. Uh, mojitos are good for, uh, for Zika. And uh, <laughs> no, let's not. Sorry. Stop. Stop. Nonsense is dangerous. Nonsense is uh, the coming thing. By the way, one of the other little themes uh, of this podcast is that um, often um, Mike mentions a place like, for example, Belarus, and then I say, oh, yes, I've been there. And I've, uh, there's a picture of me, which I can send to you shortly, of me drinking a pint of beer outside the main KGB headquarters in Belarus, which, by the way, it's still... Belarus is so Soviet, it's so purely Brezhnevite, there is still... The secret police is still called the KGB. They haven't even mm. bothered to rename it. The lunatic in charge is a guy called Lukashenko, who, who has said that a good tractor or a good piece of vodka or a stay in the sauna will will sort you out as far as the virus is concerned. Good tractor is, is, I mean, you you really want to talk about just how Soviet (laughs) Belarus is. To say a good tractor, which I mean, you know, love under the tractor is sort of the caricature of socialist realist literature. So vodka, sauna and tractor are the three go-tos for Lukashenko talking about taking the, the cure for this plague. It's amazing. So um, it would be wrong, I think, to reheat uh, yesterday's uh, conversation when you failed to record your half. Lightning um, in a bottle, John. Can't be captured. <laughs> Sorry. But, but I think we should... Um, I think the, the ground we covered was actually... Uh, it's actually about uh, Soviet tractors. Where are they now? So... Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders, where are you now? Where are your Soviet tractors of yesteryear? Mike, what, explain the fall of the, of the left or the far left or the silly left or the mad left or the virtuous left, the left who was going to do something and, uh, about capitalism and ended up being cheated. What do you think? Well, I think at the time Putin was seen and indeed was presenting himself as a partner to the United States and the UK. Um, Tony Blair, I remember, was quite cozy with Putin. Um, You had told me, I didn't even realize this, that that, uh, Putin was invited to checkers even before he took over the presidency of Russia while he was still prime minister. He was the heir apparent, obviously, but still prime minister. Um, So so long as, as Russia, which had emerged from the Wild West capitalism of the 1990s, the the drunken Yeltsin period, so long as Russia was seen as a a rising partner and ally of America, it was fine to condemn the the actions of its government and the grave human rights abuses and atrocities committed by its government, particularly those waged in the name of counterterrorism, which is still very much a theme that that Putin is is purveying in terms of trying to, to create these alliances uh, internationally. Um, so it, it made perfect sense for Corbyn, uh, you know, a guy who had declared his solidarity with the wretched of the earth his entire career. And Chechens, as you pointed out, are Muslim, and he has a, a large following, or he did have a large following in the UK among uh, Muslims, particularly Palestinians. It made perfect sense for him to denounce Putin. Um, however, what you'll find with this sort of far left ideology is that, you know, solidarity. Um, and compassion ends where the geopolitical divide begins. In other words, any regime, however awful and corrupt and criminal, uh, which is aligned with the U.S., can be described as awful, corrupt, and criminal. Any regime 
as such, which is opposed to the United States, is an ally or a friend waiting to be made or a complicated uh, affair. Um, and I think this is what has uh, sort of snared Corbyn in this, this paralytic and ultimately electorally catastrophic mo- mindset whereby, you know, his government's own security services are coming out and saying Russian military intelligence committed an act of state terrorism on UK soil resulting in uh, the death of a British citizen. Um, and he, he sort of, you know, he, he looks at the floor and he shuffles his feet to even find an ill word to say about the Kremlin. Um, and I think, again, this, this derives not so much even necessarily from Corbyn's own political outlook, because I, I, I see him as a weird combination of befuddled and sinister. And the sinister element is it's this, this, this hyper consistency of approach. There is no nuance. Facts cannot intrude upon a, a very rigid ideological construct in his mind. But the, uh, you know, the, the people that he has surrounded himself with, particularly Seamus Milne, who I refer to as the Strelnikov of King's Cross. I mean, this is a guy, just to look at him, you can tell, John. I mean, there but for an accident of geography is the greatest commissar the Soviet Union ever knew. Uh, and I think of, of, of Milne as a proper Stalinist. And he comes out and, and more or less says exactly that. He wrote a column in The Guardian saying, Russia should be defended because it's a bulwark against Western hegemony and Western imperialism. Well, there it is. So that means that invasion of European sovereign soil, annexation of European sovereign soil waged on a blood and soil philosophy akin to the Third Reich is defensible or actually is defensive in nature because it's all about countermanding NATO. Uh, State assassinations, uh, carpet bombing, the the destruction of hospitals, schools, uh, mass civilian carnage in Aleppo, all of these things are excusable or maybe even didn't happen. Maybe there are conspiracies concocted by the CIA and MI6 and NATO to put the blame on the Kremlin for their own perfidies. This is the, this is the kind of noxious and, and indeed pathological uh, thinking that I think has informed the, the Corbynista left. And in the U.S., it's a bit of a different state of affairs, isn't it? Uh, you know. But Bernie, it feels to me that Bernie Sanders is less muddled, less dark than Jeremy Corbyn. Is that so? Yeah, it is. And it's a it's a, a very American, homegrown, slightly cuddlier version of socialism. Uh, actually, it's, it's, it's rather funny. So Sanders at one point was aligned with the Socialist Workers Party in the United States, which we could do a whole podcast on, on Trotskyist factionalism and the splits and, and, you know, sort of infinite regression of, of these little groupuscules, uh, particularly in the 30s and 40s. But anyway, um, you know, I've always thought that trots in the U.S. tend to mature a little bit better politically than trots in the U.K. Trots in the U.K., by the way, end up staying in this rapist cult called the Socialist Workers' Party, not to be confused with the American version, which had been founded, I believe, and run by Jerry Healy, Going to your point, by the way, about Mrs. Redgrave, uh, she might be a delightful woman uh, in society, but her whole family was essentially brainwashed by Jerry Healy and yes. this noxious oh, no, no. far-left but, cult. But, but, but anyway, in the, the U.S. On, but point of detail, you're right about that, but I like Vanessa as a human being, and I'm conflicted. But Healy was in the work, and they were in the Workers' Revolutionary Party. 
No, oh, excuse me. Yes. Yeah. So See, the, the, this is what I mean about these splits and you know <laughs> splits within splits and or splinters, whatever whatever the, the, the term of art is but, to describe this. But yeah, anyway. But Bernie, um, Bernie, feels Bernie better. though is it, it's a it's a it's a more I mean, and especially in his case, um, you know, born in Brooklyn, Jewish, the kind of family that would argue around the dinner table every night of the week. Uh, fucks off to Vermont, which is weird, frankly. But anyway, uh, was a member of Yipsil, which is the Young uh, Socialist League, Young Independent Socialist League. A lot of the uh, the so-called neoconservative intellectuals of the last 10 years or so got their start in Yipsil. Uh, Joshua Moravchik, who was a writer and I think editor at Commentary Magazine, for instance. Carl uh, uh, Gershman, who is still the chairman of the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, was famously a Trotskyist in his youth. So I don't know that Bernie was, was a proper trot, but he was sort of Trotskyist adjacent. Anyway, this is a long way of saying Bernie's problem is he was he was never fit for national office. He was he was an eccentricity and an important eccentricity to American democracy and the kind of he played the gadfly role in Congress, didn't really do much, didn't have many legislative achievements to his name. But he's not a bad man. He's not an indecent man. And in fact, he's been quite principled on some things. The problem that I had with, with his campaign, well, two. Number one, the people that he hired to staff the fucking campaign. Uh, after he withdrew from the race, his press secretary went on Twitter and said, well, I guess now we can drop the Democratic before socialist pretense. And she seemed to suggest that, that Democratic socialism stood for a kind of socialism that was branded by the Democratic Party, which is just ahistorical and, and frankly dumb, and actually begs the question, how did this woman ever get a job as a, a spokesman on a national political campaign? Uh, I've seen a lot of other sort of inanities since he's withdrawn. Uh, it's, it's essentially, it's, it's children throwing their toys out the pram. Um, you're, you're beginning to see the, the Bernie or bust um, line of thinking really come into focus here. And this, this continues, by the way, even after he's come out, very graciously endorsed Joe Biden in, in a tone and manner that he would never have done and didn't, didn't do for Hillary Clinton in 2016. So you have a lot of, you know, millennial leftists who cut their teeth long after the wall came down, referring to the Berlin Wall, not the the ill-fated one that Trump is building on the border with with Mexico. Um, <laughs> By the way, who the, the... don't really have don't really have an understanding of of history. They don't want to engage with with the complexities and and the the sort of failures of of state socialism as or actually existing socialism as it used to be called. And for them, this really was a an, a fanatical revolutionary movement. And now the problem they're going to have is. As you know, all revolutions that fail, which are most of them, cannibalize their own. And what I'm seeing now, or what I'm beginning to see the beginnings of, I, sh I should say, is, is the kind of circular firing squad. Who's to blame for the, fan for the failure of, of the Sandersista revolution? And the answer is, you know, Bernie and, frankly, everyone else who thought that they could, they could win an election without really doing the kind of coalition building that the Democratic Party learned the hard way after many successive failures to do. Um, so they lost the African-American vote. Uh, they didn't really do that well with women. They, you know, they tended to track very young, and they assumed that young people would turn out to the polls and sweep them into power. And it turned out, actually, this year, even more young people stayed home from the f fucking polls than they did in 2016. Bernie performed worse 
in certain areas, particularly here where I am in Michigan, uh, this year than he did four years ago. So where was this this faded messianic movement? Uh, it, it just didn't materialize. And so there's a lot of nastiness recrimination. There's also, frankly, I mean, if you know, you you scratch the surface of the democratic socialists of America and some of the the, the, the larger megaphones, uh, whether they're podcasters or just Twitter twats. Um, a lot of these people traffic in conspiracy theories about Syria chemical weapons use. A lot of them downplay uh, the Russian interference campaign or the Russian interference operation in 2016 in the United States. They're apologists. I mean, they're apologists in the way that Seamus Milne is an apologist. So the, the, the broad strokes of what I'm trying to say is I think Bernie was better than his own movement. I think he was more of a decent guy than a lot of the people who coalesced around him. Whereas in the UK, no, I think Corbynistas are just as rotten as Corbyn himself. Yes. Um, Corbyn, I think there was one of um, this guy called Julian Smith, who was the chief whip. And then he became the Northern Irish Secretary, not for long, but long enough to secure um, finally... Um, a deal um, between the um, um, between the uh, the Northern Irish Prods and the uh, uh, the DUP and uh, the Shinners Sinn Féin, and he managed to get them back in into um, um, into government in Northern Ireland, local government in Northern Ireland, which is a great thing. And anyway, Boris got rid of him. I think because the guy was um, too smart. And he wrote a little diary from the New Statesman um, in which he bumped into Jeremy Corbyn, who's some kind of neighbour of his at the local um, uh, gym or whatever it was. And um, Corbyn was pleasant, as he always is. So there's this strange thing that's going on. Now, in my novel, The Useful Idiot, the one you haven't read, the, um, the there are two characters in it. One of them, uh, he's an American academic, but his name is Cornelius Orbin, and his um, consigliere is a man called Milner. And, and some people might think that it's Corbin and Seamus Milne, but I'm fascinated mm. by the way these people can can see. I would have thought that what Russia is doing in helping Assad in Syria or that the GRU by trying to poison and murder um, um, Skripal in Salisbury, a cathedral city, that's wrong and evil, but they can't bring themselves to call that for what it is. There's the, a, but there's the, a strong, I think, psychological underpinning to a lot of this ideology too. Um, look, these people cannot win a free and fair democratic election by just good faith efforts. It's got to be skullduggery. It's got to be deceit, deception, um, sort of, you know, the entryist mode whereby they infiltrate a mainstream party and then slowly vitiate it and take it over from within, that kind of thing. Um, you know, one of my favorite lines about fellow travelerism is Malcolm Muggridge, the famous BBC journalist and weird British eccentricity in many other respects. The guy who made Mother Teresa famous, by the way. Um, I think in the 1930s, he was taken or invited to a tour of the USSR by his good friends Sidney and Beatrice Webb, who were two of the most prominent and notorious fellow travelers of Stalinism in the UK in the 30s. And unlike a lot of Western intellectuals who did that uh, sort of homage, came back 
from the USSR and the scales had fallen from his eyes. And he was asked by someone, you know, what, what do you think it is with Sidney and Beatrice that they so admire this socialist experiment in the East? And Muggeridge, Muggeridge's reply was, well, it's because Stalin is doing to intellectuals in Moscow what they, meaning Sidney and Beatrice Webb, wish they could do to intellectuals <laughs> in London. So in other words, any, any deviation from, from the party line, any dissent, any kind of um, act of self-criticism, which is another sort of catechism of socialism, uh, is to be deplored because it dilutes the purity of the, the cause. And so in other words, you need an authoritarian model to succeed. So I look at Seamus Mill and I see a guy who really wishes he could do in the UK what Putin is doing, not only in Russia, but around the world. Blacken the opposition with lies, uh, accuse any kind of misstep or failure on his own part and his own policy planning uh, as part of some CIA, State Department intelligence operation. Uh, it's a dark conspiratorial worldview, but it's also one that comes out of their own core inner psychology. These are people who don't really, they're not Democrats with a small d. They don't believe in this way of life. They, they, they wish to have a different way of life, but they, they are willing to use and to manipulate democratic means to get there. Uh, so I think that, that actually informs a lot of it as well. Uh, it can't be discounted. And yeah, nobody wants to be a dime store psychologist, which is, I suppose, what I've just become. But it's, it's almost inescapable. You know, Orwell yes. wrote about this mindset, yes. too, on the left. And when he was living it at a time when, frankly, you know, th there was no way to do open source forensic work on the Ukrainian terror famine, for instance. There was no Bellingcat in Orwell's day. You had to rely on the good faith of people who were witnesses to history. And unfortunately, so many of those witnesses had no good faith. I mean, one of the characters in your book, is it not, is Walter Durante of the New York a, Times, who won a Pulitzer Prize. He's a dark for, hero. Yeah, the New York Times, yeah. the star, still, they still claim that. The thing about um, Muggeridge, I met Muggeridge, by the way, uh, when I was a cub reporter on the Sheffield Telegraph in 1981. Muggeridge's mum came from Sheffield. It was a local connection which allowed me to go and see him. And he was, he was still great um, with his wife Kitty, uh, he he had a um, you know he got gods. I mean he spent an awful lot of his life uh, drinking and womanizing and being very very ungodly. And as um, as the end neared, what's the line from Larkin? Uh, and then um, um, and then old age, and then the only end of age. Um, but anyway, right. as that approached, he got a um, he got God, and fair enough, that's his call or whatever. It's his choice. Um, or his conviction, but about one thing in his life, he was absolutely on the money, and that was that Stalin's famine was a terrible thing, and that people covered it up, and they covered it up yeah. for power. There were three people who told the truth about Stalin's famine, and they were Malcolm Muggeridge, Gareth Jones, who is the hero of my book and also this film, um, Mr. Jones, played um, by one of the uh, James Bond contenders, James something, I've forgotten his surname. Um, and the third guy was an American Trotskyist called um, Fred Beale, who wrote for a Yiddish mm. newspaper in New York. And, and of the three, essentially, Fred Beale survived but was ignored. Muggeridge survived but was sacked by the Manchester Guardian because... He was telling them things they didn't want to know. And the third person, Gareth Jones, he was shot in 35 in China, almost certainly by 
the secret police, the, the free letters, the checker, the uh, GEPU, the GPU, the OGPU, the, the forerunners to, to the KGB, stroke the FSB, SS, SVR, GRU, uh, that, we, that we know and do not love today. So this, they were the truth tellers and they were in massive trouble. And it feels incredible in the 21st century that somebody like Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition, could give the Russians the benefit of the doubt about Scripple. But they did. They did. They did. He did. He did. And this was, I think, and, and I think the polls suggest this too, it's one of the things that certainly a whole ton of working class British people really didn't like because they smelt traitor. And, and that... Yeah. That's a heavy word, but I feel I've, that's a heavy word. But in, in, for Corbyn to give the Russian state, with all its history of poisoning people, the benefit of the doubt, it's not on. It's not on. Yeah. Do you think... So, I mean, this is an, an internal question, and the reason I, we should explain to our two or three listeners is that I put a 500-quid... <laughs> bet on Joe Biden to win. And one of my best friends is a guy called Owen Phillips, and he, he's always phoning me up and saying, he's gaga. He's Welsh, Owen. He's gaga, Joe Biden. You're wasting your money. Sorry, that sounds a bit West Country too as well. Even so, am I wasting my money, or will Trump win through? I think Biden is oh. a very lucky man in that he's the, the, the sole beneficiary at the moment of just enormous Trump wariness and Trump hatred. This is a guy who's been running for president of the United States for the past 40 some odd years and failing. I mean, before this year, he'd never won a primary or a caucus. I didn't realize that until it was pointed out to me. It's really remarkable <laughs> for a guy who's thrown his hat in the ring this many times. Um, it's true, as I mentioned to you before, he has lost a step or 73. I mean, he. this is not a guy who's all there. Um, and I think it shows if you look at some of the bizarre coronavirus bunker commentaries he's been releasing on YouTube and so on. Um, but I think, look, you know, people are familiar with Biden. They see him as an extension of Obama. You've got Obama endorsing him. I just saw Elizabeth Warren endorsed him. Bernie has endorsed him in a more fulsome manner than Bernie was wont to do with his opponent in 2016. Um, there are a lot of things going in his favor at the moment. And of course, you know, the one thing Trump was, was hoping to coast into re-election on was the strength of the U.S. economy, and that, that strength is now gone um, because of the pandemic. Um, so... I'm I'm more inclined to say, you know, he's he's definitely got a, a fighting chance. What concerns me, though, is it's a long way to November. The polling is not nearly as uh, yeah, that's Biden true. favorable as it should be, uh, given just, I mean, again, every day, anybody who tunes into these Trump press conferences about the, the pandemic, um, the, the fact that I think what it's about high 30s, maybe low 40s approval on, on U.S. handling of the crisis. There is a there is a rock solid, a, a granite base of Trump supporters who are louder, um, more energetic, um, more online 
than there ever will be uh, the like for Joe Biden. Now, what Joe Biden is hoping will happen is that blacks and women in particular will turn out for him. And they really have to do so in three or four swing states. And there's the election. Uh, But I'm worried. I am very worried because I, I do think that at whatever point there's going to be a debate between these two men, you know, as I said last week, Trump is a buffoon and he's unintelligible, but he's sort of in control of his own narrative. He, he, he sinks his teeth into being the punchline of a joke or trying to, to make a joke at somebody else's expense and having it backfire. He, he owns that in a bizarre uh, sort of way. And, and Biden does not. Biden look, comes across as, as a doddering old man. Um, who can't remember where he left his car keys or, you know, gets lost in the grocery store, that kind of thing. And that's going to be very bad because, really, Americans do vote on optics. They, they, they vote for someone. They, they very rarely vote against. Now, this might be the, the anomaly, right? I mean, the hatred of Trump is, is so pronounced that they might actually turn out a protest vote against him and say, we're fine to put, you know, grandpa in the retirement home in the Oval <laughs> Office for four years. Let's just let's hope he surrounds himself by with with smart people. Um, but I don't know, John, I really don't. I, I think people are, you know, they're they're and, and our class of, of, you know, media, punditocracy, whatever you want to call it. We always make this mistake, don't we? We always wish fulfillment uh, masquerading as analysis. And, you know, I, I look at the worst case scenario, which is this guy can can pull it off. He will have convinced a, a, a plurality of Americans that he's a wartime president, that this whole plague is the result of either Chinese bioweaponry gone awry or the Chinese government lying and that, you know, the, the liberal left. I mean, you saw the press conference where he's and he, he there are there is some validity to some of these points. I mean, a lot of other people got coronavirus wrong at the very beginning, too. But it doesn't matter. You're the president of the United States. You have to take responsibility. He's very good. At, at fobbing off responsibility and accountability and convincing people that he's right. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not with you. I would say your 500 quid is about 50-50. Um, someone sent me a rather cheeky um, point, which I'm going to put to you and see what you think. What if Trump is running for president because he is a public humiliation kink and his dominatrix writes ridiculous scripts for him? <laughs> <laughs> so he's he's a submissive and and he's he's donned the the metaphorical um leather bondage gear and the ball gag in the mouth and uh he's a gimp yeah. there's a gimp he's a gimp he's a gimp right like george galloway drinking from the saucer of milk on big brother he's got it he's got to do what bigger, his master tells him uh, his mistress his the mistress. bigger the ego the bigger the ego, the um, the more crazy um, the extent of his submission. Well, look, I think, I, I mean, if you go back and look <laughs> at documentaries made about him or documentaries made now about his past career and, and persona, he this is also somebody who's suffered from real emotional, mental deterioration or... Um, because he was, you know, he was he was always an asshole, but he was he wasn't uh, he wasn't quite as stupid and as as sort of you know burbling an asshole as he is now. Um, and I think it's either look he he got older and he's just let his freak flag fly, 
Or there might be a put upon a put on sort of uh, element to this, which is crazy in America sells. I mean, it really does. You can make a good wow. living. You can make wow. a good living. Wow. Talking utter piss and nonsense and scaring the shit out of, you know, little old ladies who send around email threads about things that are just concocted whole cloth. Uh, and it doesn't require the intervention of the Russian security services or the Chinese or the Iranians. This is just an American thing. Um, we're, we're gullible people. And, I mean, you look at the rise of somebody like Alex Jones, who, I mean, the, the guy looks like he needs to be institutionalized. He's suffering from a real psychotic episode every day on, on that InfoWars platform, which has now been deplatformed or dehosted by YouTube and the rest of it. But that's all an act, too. He doesn't really believe half the shit he says. He just knows that his audience is stupid enough to believe it, and he's going to, he's going to ring in the cash, usually by hawking male vitalities, vitality supplements. Um, I think Trump is very much of the same species. He realizes that when he says outlandish things, there's a, there's a, a, a response to it. There's a reflex, and it gets him a bigger and bigger audience and constituency. Yeah, there, you know, look, this is a guy who rescued himself from not anonymity, but out of a kind of, you know, career destitute by, by starring in a, in a reality show, which was all about getting to work for him. So he runs the country like this is an extension of The Apprentice. Who gets to work for me today? And how are they going to impress me? And, uh, you know, what's their, what's their secret confessional, which for him is leaking to the New York Times or the Washington Post. And if they do that and they talk badly about the CEO, they get sacked. So it's all still a game. Which is why, you know, this whole, I have to put my signature on every fucking check that goes out to Americans. That's a great conceit for an NBC show, isn't it? But when you're leader of the free world and people are dying in record numbers, I mean, what, what level of narcissism and megalomania are we talking about here? Just for him, it's, it's all just theater. So, well, I, I think we should wrap up, but I'm going to ask you one last question. You've been listening to The Last Call with uh, me, John Sweeney, and Michael Weiss in the States. So my last question, Mike, is this. Do you, re do you repent 1776? No, and for the reason that you, you can't say that an experiment that succeeded against great odds historically and then start started to go a bit doo-dah at the, the end there, uh, is, a, is necessarily a failure. It's not. Um, it, things could have gone differently in this country, for sure. And, you know, there but for one U.S. presidential election. I mean, if, if Biden were to win um, and righted the ship, and, or at least did what he needed to do to return us to some semblance of normality, uh, would we be saying, that's it? It's the end of America? No, we probably wouldn't. So, look, I, I'm, I'm always doom and gloom, uh, just as that's my natural disposition <laughs> from when I wake up in the morning and I go to bed at night. I'm always thinking it's the end of the world, and I'm all actually pining for it in certain by cases. The way, by the way, you're on the money at the moment, mate. <laughs> yeah. So, but no, I think, I think we were well within our rights to, uh, to do a conscious decoupling from the United Kingdom, especially because your monarch at the time could give Donald Trump a run for his money was pissing blue, right? <laughs> By the way, that's, that, that, is, that is my favorite, you know, two peoples um, divided by a common language moment is when the studio was putting out 
the madness of George the Third, as the play was properly called, mm-hmm. the Alan Bennett play. They said well, we have yeah. to change the title of this play and this film uh, for an American audience because if we call it the madness of George the Third, Americans will wonder what happened to parts one and two. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, I think an hour is up roughly, so let's say uh, goodbye. And uh, as the Queen likes to say, we will meet again. Yeah, indeed. Or not.